Hello, I'm Alan Davis. I'm an architect and heritage lead at BDP. Welcome to the first ever BDP podcast series. It's called Old Buildings, New Beginnings. In this series, we discuss the current thinking relating to the reuse of old and existing buildings. We will discuss topics including adaptive reuse, sustainability, accessibility, improving performance, as well as the cultural significance of keeping old buildings. Why build new when you can repurpose the old? Welcome to the conversation. So welcome to Old Buildings, New Beginnings, where this week we're considering how we as architects bring buildings back to life. We live in a time of change, and the global pandemic has accelerated that change. As we emerge from the pandemic, we need to adapt, and our buildings will also adapt. From adaptive reuse of historic structures to retrofit projects in modern buildings, there are more options available to us and to our clients than ever before. Retrofit and refurbishment seems like the obvious choice, but is it more cost-effective? And can we deal with historic buildings, buildings with heritage value? Can we retain the important character and history of these buildings? With me today, I have three architect directors whose work involves adaptive reuse. Uh, Firstly, Dev Mehta, at BDP in the Toronto studio, Bruce Kennedy in our Glasgow studio, and Mike Camden in the Manchester studio. Welcome to you all. Mike, yeah, it sounds as if the drivers for change in education are, are changing almost before your very eyes. Things, things, the pandemic has changed. Um, the education sector. Can you just tell us a bit about that and how the needs of the universities are changing? I can do my best, yeah. So, so as an education sector, we're looking at a lot of um, campuses that were, were built in the you know, a lot in the kind of late 60s, early 70s, when there's a real boom in education um, in the UK. And you know, many of the campuses are now finding that their, their building stock is tired in, in need of a, um, a physical kind of upgrade because you know, buildings, the facades, the infrastructure are just tiring. But also things have, have just re- really moved on. Requirements of a 21st century, century education facility is generally quite different, probably was in the 1970s. So one of the, one of the buildings we've completed recently is um, refurbishment to the old Students' Union at Manchester Metropolitan University and its conversion into a new institute of sport, so a research and teaching building. Um, it, it, it's, it's quite interesting looking at the old building that it was in its day, it was incredibly successful as a students' union, really, really kind of strong list of bands who played there, everything from U2 through to the, you know, the Cure, Simple Minds to, to Nirvana, probably some of the more famous ones from the, the late, you know, through the 80s. But but much of it didn't work. I mean, things like the bar and the the dance floor were up on the first floor. So as as various regulations around sort of fire requirements, etc., changed, it just became more and more difficult for the university to operate. Plus, I think I think the whole requirement around what the university was wanting out of a students' union 
has, has, has shifted in the uh, um, 50 years since it was built. So, so we initially the building was earmarked for demolition. It's in quite a kind of a key point within the city um, on Manchester's Oxford Road, Road, Oxford Road knowledge corridor. Um, but but the university asked us to do a number of feasibility studies to look at it and say, well, what what else could it be? How how else could you bring it back to use? Can we get some more life out of it? So so ultimately we we did we looked at some studies we we looked at how we could fit the brief for a, um, a, a sports research uh, institute into there and developed strategy for how it could work looked at it and, and the benefits from both the cost point but also from a carbon saving were, were really significant by retaining as much of the the existing concrete frame some of the cladding as possible but really breathing kind of new life into it and getting it to work. And giving the building probably another another 50 years worth of life. I think the New Zealand universities were changing steadily already with the you know, the advent of um, fees in the UK going back a few years now. Then you know, students started becoming a lot more discerning about what they were getting out of their education and therefore what they wanted their their facilities to to provide. Um, but I think one thing that's been really accelerated by the pandemic is the shift away from um, the reliance on sort of didactic lectures um, to get over to transmit a huge amount of education through towards having much more space for students to be involved in um, self-directed learning, social learning, a much more active, active learning, proactive learning um, than, than many institutes could previously provide. So I think I think what we're seeing is a real shift in terms of increase in um spaces that were that were sort of the in-between spaces so, so they're no longer just about sort of formal learning spaces or formal labs it's a real growth in spaces for students to inhabit um, between lab sessions between lectures but also going into the evening um and and to really kind of colonize to make their own and and to use where they can work in many ways as kind of a student office, I guess, rather than taking work back to their bedsits or, or their halls of residence. So, so one of the challenges is to say, well, well, how can we kind of get that space in? And I think it was accelerated by the pandemic um, for a couple of reasons. One, when, when it, when it demonstrated to universities that shifting lectures online can can be very successful. Um, there is success stories. There's, there's some uh, institutions which found that a lot harder. But what it does, it gives students a real opportunity to kind of go back and revisit lectures kind of on and off. But therefore, it does question whether whether the live lecture in a big lecture theatre is always needed or whether there's a, there's a better way of doing it. But actually, if students are therefore able to an, um, access a lecture off-site and remotely at any time of day or night, why, why should they come to campus? So therefore, creating facilities that really bring them to campus and make them want to spend time on campus, because those people-to-people -people skills are, are really important, both for their learning, but also for their, their future employability, is, is really key. So, so how, can, how can we do that? How can we create spaces? And in many ways, I think revitalizing existing buildings because of some of the, you know, the, the, the cost benefits and the carbon benefits is is an effective way of producing that that 
new type of space. Mm. And Bruce, in contrast, I think the drivers are cultural drivers and the combination of those and technical issues. Yes. Hi, Alan. Um, I mean, I think the first project I'd like to talk about is Aberdeen Music Hall. I mean, I, th- I think uh, certainly the cultural drivers were really important to the, the client and they were very much in the forefront of our minds as we approached the project. Um, because I think what they, what they were tended to find is for very many uh, types of performance, they had a dwindling audience. Um, the venue itself, I think, felt as if it was probably stuck in the, the mid-20th century in terms of its presentation, its sort of look and feel, uh, and its ambience. And, you know, their, their cafe um, takings were down. It was more difficult to, to be able to stage the types of performance that they wanted in the main spaces. So very much it was about bringing in new audiences, making the building much more accessible to a much uh, wider cross-section of the community, uh, whether that be younger people or uh, middle-aged people, but, you know, just spreading out that um, accessibility you know, culturally and socially as much as physically. And there was certainly a physical uh, accessibility issue, which is also very common to heritage buildings, and that many of them were designed at a time when issues about physical accessibility were you know, certainly not in the forefront of people's minds. But now, of course, we want buildings to be as inclusive as they possibly can. Um, and again, the adaption of heritage structures in a way that's sympathetic in order to ensure that you're providing the maximum uh, accessibility is absolutely key in these projects. So physical accessibility, cultural and social accessibility, kind of hand in hand, certainly on that project. And actually thinking about another project that we've dealt with recently in Glasgow at Queen Street Station, um, we had a fantastic opportunity there to have a, a grade, or as you say, a category A-listed building at the, at the heart of the, the project, which is the original train shed that was designed by James Carswell in the middle of the 19th century. Um, so an A-listed structure is effectively the, the, the highest listing value in Scotland. And it's, it's seen as a nationally important structure, single-span uh, iron train shed. Fantastic building, so in volume. And the good thing about it is it's still serving the same function that it did when it was first built, which is always fantastic, actually, in, in buildings. Um, so still very relevant, you know, 100, 150 years on, 170 years on. And what we did there, of course, was to respond to, again, change in, in the railway environment. So a push toward decarbonisation, uh, a push toward accommodating more passengers on, on the railways. And of course, this was all pre-COVID. Of course, we're all hoping and expecting that there'll be a, a robust uh, return to public transport as people become more confident again. But there, there was a, an increase in uh, passenger numbers forecast from about 19 million to about 38 million um, per annum by 2042. And so the challenge there was to get longer trains into the station and in order to do that, actually what had to happen was the platforms had to be extended and that pushed the public concourse out of the, the James Carswell train shed and toward the, uh, the street to the south. Um, so our challenge became, how do you then replace that passenger tra- uh, concourse? And we went through a lot of analysis, um, pedestrian flow analysis and so on to determine the best form and location for that. And that allowed us to make a justified case for the removal of some fairly unattractive 1960s and 70s buildings that certainly had no heritage value and were pretty much unloved by the people of Glasgow. Um, and what that allowed us to do then was put a, a big glazed frontage. Effectively, the, the station concourse became a big living room in the street, which also then addresses the, the principal public space in Glasgow George Square, the principal civic space. 
So suddenly the station was opened up to the city and the city to the station, which is a fantastic experience. And now when you come off the train from Edinburgh or from the Highlands, rather than your first impression of Glasgow being Burger King that you see at the end of the concourse, you're now looking out into George Square and, and Civic Buildings beyond. So it's really been a fantastic transformation. And of course, the new building is designed as an entirely contemporary expression. But what we were able to do as part of that was also strip away all of the, the accretions that had happened to the, the airlisted train shed over the years and reveal its original structure and its original integrity by making it virtually freestanding, surrounded by a new building. So a big, a big driver for that was understanding the history of the site and understanding the, the nature and the integrity of the original building and then trying to reinforce that with the setting that we created with our new contemporary building. Great. Great. Dev, if I can bring you back to the drivers, it sounds as if the drivers are structural changes, economic changes, um, industries declining, industries starting, which which we've seen a lot in the UK in the latter part of the 20th century. Is that is that um, a significant driver in in other projects in Canada, or what, what else do you see as the main drivers for change, which, which may bring about adaptive reuse? Yeah, I, I think there are a number of drivers. Um, industry change, certainly. We have, over over the decades, converted a number of factory buildings, toy factory, uh, candy factory in, in downtown Toronto, and of course, the, the shoe factory building buildings that have kind of run their life but but offer extremely flexible plans and and structure that can be reused i'd say quite easily um in a sense so so that's certainly um a, a bit of it i would say in, looking ahead one of the big uh, changes that we will see will be i think a combination of our kind of importance on understanding the, the, the different aspects of sustainability, the, the main item being uh, embodied carbon and understanding, you know, there's this saying that the, the most sustainable buildings are the ones that already exist, um, of course. So, so reusing significant elements and components of, of existing buildings, I think, will be more, more appealing, but will also um, likely be required as as um, as policies shift to understand embodied carbon. So I, I think that's going to be a very huge component. Um, when thinking about the Bata shoe factory in particular, really what was maintained was the concrete structure of the building, but it's a significant amount of embodied carbon. And and I I think looking ahead, speaking from a, a North American perspective, so much of what we built is tailored to automobiles, the storage of automobiles, for example. I mean, you think of um, the average, let's say, new high-density multi-unit residential building in, in an urban center. You know, for every, let's say on average, for every one residential unit, you have one parking space um, that's built, you know, and, and as the units continue to shrink for, for affordability and for various reasons, the parking space doesn't shrink um, given, given the, the configuration and size of a car. So, you know, you're, you're looking at roughly 300 to 350 square feet or about, you know, 30 square meters dedicated 
to a parking space. And in the future, for a number of reasons, I think we, we can um, assume that private automobile usage um, will dwindle. And so I, I think looking ahead, um, we'll, we really have to carefully consider what we do with all of these either below grade or above grade parking parking structures that are largely built out of uh, out of uh, cast in place concrete and have tremendous embodied carbon in them. So I think that will be a big challenge, but a great opportunity. Yeah, I think there's two really interesting points there, Dev's coming that, that overlap with what we're, we're looking at as well. I mean, the first is very much about the low carbon design that for, for, for clients that already own a lot of buildings, then that that is a, you know, a massive consideration. You know, can 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 they start off by not demolishing something, and how much of something can can they retain? And I know on the on the Institute of Sport, we retained all of the structure, and we retained the facades to to the north elevation, partly because it's very difficult to build against a motorway, and just overclad it. But the the analysis suggests we've saved um, the equivalent carbon to running the build the new building for twelve years. So that's that's that, that's quite a, a notable um, benefit, I think. You know, out of a if we if we designed it to a fifty year life, then you know, nearly nearly twenty five percent of the the building's running cost is already absorbed just just by saving you know, the facade. Uh, sorry, saving saving the structure with, with some of the facade. And I think I think for major landowners, that's that is we're going to see that that as a growing consideration. Um, and analysis, you know, and, and testing to be done right from day one to say, you know, what are the benefits of keeping this? I think it'll be interesting to see. In, sorry, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see in the future if the legislative framework begins to catch up with us as well. And there's actually a positive pressure in, in favour of retention, as opposed to the assumption of development is that you know it's an open field. You can either, if it's not a listed or a heritage building, and very many of the structures we deal with are not listed buildings, but it doesn't mean to say they don't have value. Nonetheless. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting metric, which it would yeah. be useful to repeat for any 20th yeah. century building retained. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested, Dev, in the use made of the industrial capable uh, factory itself you mentioned the the overall setting and the uh, the opportunities there for an, an attractive environment but the industrial building itself was converted to to what uses largely actually to residential um, and and in the factory buildings we've converted over the years they are primarily converted to residential they offer expansive you know, floor-to-ceiling heights, massive open windows, um, and and spaces that simply would not be built in conventional kind of construction uh, methodologies, and offer really unique and spectacular spaces. Mm. So space standards are more generous than new build, I guess. Um, are there any other advantages that you can see from reuse this is an open question to all three of you uh, any other advantages apart from sustainability we've discussed uh, space standards um, from reusing buildings rather than building new yeah i mean I th- again i think it depends on the nature of the structure but very many uh, buildings we deal with and it's particularly maybe the case in the, in the case of public buildings are also a repository of memory for people so 
I think they create a place in society that gives identity and a sense of place. Um, you know, in the case of a building music hall, perhaps that's a more obvious uh, analogy in the sense that many people maybe met there, had their first kiss, maybe went to the first dance, enjoyed a particular concert that sits with them forever, you know. So these buildings are, are really important, I think, to society. And, you know, we have a responsibility in the way that we deal with those to recognise that, you know, as architects, we don't own those buildings to do with as we want. They're actually owned by the wider community. And we have a part to play in their redevelopment, but, you know, it's not entirely a gift to decide what's appropriate. I think that's an important aspect of it for sure. Well, this touches on issues of uh, significance. What we generally, when we talk uh, in heritage terms, has significance. And there are various ways of measuring heritage significance. And and in UK um, guidance and legislation, there are four values um, discussed, which are um, aesthetic or architectural, historic, evidential, what it tells us about the way people lived, and community value. And I think you've touched on, in particular there, on community value. Um, and I guess, you know, Michael would say the same for, for his MMU building and the, the bands that played there, you know, that the community that that related to was students of a certain period or throughout a an extended period. Um, in in Dev's case, you know the the people who actually emigrated and and set up that place, and then their descendants after that. So um, the significance, um, I think, it'd be interesting now to discuss how we retain that character, or how you've retained that character or that memory in the buildings that you've worked on. If I could. Um, I'll come back to you, Dev. I think in uh, you know there is in in converting and and it's quite a bold conversion from a big expansive space to residential. But I guess it just serves a bigger community now. And uh, is there are there any particular ways that you've sought to retain that character, or do you think it's inherent in the architecture and the architecture is strong enough? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I. I th- when thinking about the factory building itself, about a shoe factory, when we demolished essentially all the exterior interior components and retained the concrete structure, which is a very simple, I mean, it's it's vertical uh, circular columns with uh, essentially like a hollow core cast, cast in place slab. Um, you think it's really open to do whatever you want with it. However, architecturally um, every design move we made was so prescribed by the existing structure and it informed every single thing we did to the smallest detail so and i'll give you one example Um, in converting to residential a big addition to the building was installing uh, new balconies onto the exterior which were foreign elements to the building and a factory building wouldn't have balconies and the the easy thing to do would be to bolt steel um, uh, cantilevered members to the to the columns um, that are expressed on the outside of the building. As we kind of drew that up, and we were working very closely with the late Sonia Bada, who we called Mrs. Bada, 
and and we showed her the sketch and it we, we knew immediately it just felt wrong it wasn't the right thing to do because the vertical columns were such an important expression on the exterior of the building so we really had to think um, creatively about how to add a balcony to this building that really responded to the, the character of the existing uh, building. So we had to um, carefully kind of insert these these steel members that cantilevered from the inside of the of the of the floor structure and had a precast balcony piece that had shared the exact same depth and kind of proportions of the beams on the exterior. Um, and all these kind of nuanced details, it was a very, very complicated kind of surgical thing to do on the building. It looks very seamless, though, in, in how it was integrated into the look of the building. But there's really, you know, thinking back on it, no other way we could have done that. And, and what it does is it creates these very kind of bespoke details. You couldn't take that balcony and put it on any other building. And, and I think the act of... Um, of working with existing buildings just forces you to respond to the existing building um, in, in unique ways. Mm. Yeah, that, and that's a very specific architectural response, um, uh, which which is worthy of any listed building. I forget if you said that it's it's scheduled in any way, but um, but but the, the approach is clearly one that that applies to listed buildings. Um, uh, Bruce, in terms of keeping that memory of of you know, the, uh, youth and um, culture, uh, was there any way that you were able, apart from preserving the building, conserving the building, keeping it in use, were there any specific moves in terms of um, referencing that earlier life? Yeah, I mean, I think when you approach an existing structure, and particularly a, a schedule or a stood structure, it's really important to do some research and really understand what the building's about, understand what it's about in its context historically, and understand what it means to people today. And we were fortunate, certainly in, in Aberdeen, for instance, which is the project I mentioned earlier, that the client had already done quite a bit of work uh, in the run-up to the, the uh, project happening. So they had already surveyed audiences to find out what we thought was good, what was bad about the building. Um, as they began to approach construction, as we were still designing, we were beginning to gather information from members of the public and people who had used the buildings over years. So that would include photographs of you know, their granny um, at a dance in the 1920s or whatever it may be, or photos of them in the 1970s at a rock concert. So you know, they were beginning already to gather this big repository of you know, what does the building actually mean to the people of Aberdeen. And I think for us that was really important, was to, to understand that link to the past and to ensure that what we did with the building uh, left a legacy that was still incredibly recognisable to people, that they didn't come back and felt that their connection with the building had been lost. And I think a lot of that is about articulation, which is obviously a really important principle, I think, as well, in the, in the approach to the design of listed buildings. So where there was something that was good, that had integrity, that had historic heritage value, then obviously we were very careful to preserve that, to set it um, appropriately. And then by the, the interventions that we made to give that a new setting that really revealed it, whether that be through architectural lighting, even just things as simple as, as picking an appropriate colour scheme of the juxtaposition of new and old elements, 
that you know these these elements of the the heritage building maybe were revealed to people in a slightly different way that gave them a new perspective. I think on something they had been used to seeing perhaps for years. And I think that was well received when the building reopened. People came in and saw it with fresh eyes, but still felt connected to it. Still felt yeah. it was a place they knew a lot. I guess when we come to yours, Mike, um, there is, there are fewer constraints. The, the building that you described is not listed. Um, uh, is it more a matter of moving it on and for the architecture to evolve to to meet uh, the current drivers, uh, or is there still um, uh, an effort to retain that memory of of what's happened there before? Well, some of it's about memory, but some of it is about, I think, looking at these buildings and thinking physically, what opportunities can they create that you wouldn't necessarily have if you were building a particular brief from scratch? So, so, so for instance, the um, at, at the, the former students' union at Manchester Met, we, we had the dance floor as a double height space right within the middle of the with the brief of, of the building. You know, what could we do with it? So we looked quite hard at the brief at some of the labs. We um, you know, we tried to analyse what the brief needed, what they wanted to do that may actually benefit from that, and, and ultimately, they had a, a biomechanics lab that they'd always wanted to be able to move vertically through space rather than just across four plates, floor, four plates in the floor, actually move up steps across beams and see how people um, moved, analyze how people moved vertically. So, so looking at this double height space, all of a sudden we could create this double height lab for them for you know, zero extra cost because it was there, but it enabled the brief to expand and really offered a new, new way of looking at, at the activities that could take place. Similarly, the, the outside of the building was previously full of a whole series of external um, steps, terraces, balconies, which were a headache. They were very difficult to maintain. They um, generally leaked because there was just so many different interfaces. So, so one of the, the things that the, that the university were keen to not retain in the existing building was those. And we were asked to kind of look at how we could get rid of them. But but rather than getting rid of them, what we ultimately did was we expanded the facade and the envelope around them to internalize these various steps. And then they became some of the self-directed learning spaces. So again, you've got essentially a series of free double height spaces, atria, which overlapped, they looked into each other, and it created a really nice set of internal arrangements that that joined the whole building back together as um, in a really kind of cohesive way and, and i guess a level of richness that wouldn't you wouldn't get in yes. a in a new building yeah because well i think it would be difficult and, and expensive to design those things into a new building but by looking you know innovatively and creatively at what, what the constraints that are already there how can you how can you really kind of flip that round to create an ex- exciting new opportunities and I guess it's a, a case of how buildings can learn, you know, how buildings can change and adapt and become better uh, at, at meeting needs over time. Um, uh, and being able to recycle them in that way is, is an excellent... Um, I think that um, that response to constraints point that you made, Mike, is a, a really good one as well, actually, because people often think that, you know, an architect's dream project's a blank sheet of paper, some unconstrained site with a brief where you can go and form whatever you want. But actually, in many ways, the richest projects are those where there's something to respond to. 
um, which is why we spend so much time looking at site analysis and really trying to understand in depth, you know, what the the the, the properties and the constraints of sites are. And where there's an existing structure, that's even more the case. And I think it's it's what you do creatively with the constraints that are there that really generates a stronger idea. And I think that's one of the joys of working on projects that involve heritage or existing structures that you already have, you know, something as a springboard to respond to and to, to create a dialogue with. Yeah, and I, th- I think those constraints can really drive innovation as well. Um, you know, we we put labs into the existing building, and at a glance, you'd, you'd say the floor to floor heights aren't enough. But by looking, you know, enough for kind of the the, the, con- the services that are required for contemporary lab, whether it's air handling services or gases or various things, generally drive a much greater floor to floor height than this building had. But so what we tried to do there was turn that through ninety degrees and have sort of a, a service wall. So that rather than going out of the top of rooms, we went out to the back with um, air handling services. But but that also meant that, that we had much shorter duct runs. We we saved money in, in all those ducts, those services. We saved money in what the height of the building would be against a kind of a new building. But all, all of that was innovation because of the constraints. And, and and I think that's that's quite exciting to be able to do rather than just deliver what is, is considered, I suppose, the best practice solution at, at any particular time. So so what we're getting is a picture of how reusing buildings can add um, richness and variety and layering and layering of meaning um, and a patina to existing buildings. I think if we can finish by just discussing what our architectural approaches is, and I think I know the answer to this, but Dev has already touched on um, uh, the care needed in dealing with existing buildings. Um, uh, we have a tradition uh, in BDP and, and more widely of constructive conservation uh, of clearly articulating new interventions. Um that that is still the prevailing approach to dealing with old buildings, historic buildings. Um, uh, is there anything you can add to that in terms of uh, uh, the architectural aspects of of layering on new aspects to a building, or or alternatively, uh, not mimicking or um, the, the sort of what is generally regarded as pastiche. Yeah, I think I think be bold is the the statement. To be honest, bold but sensitive because we are dealing with buildings that are you know, particularly of historic value. But it's interesting that very often the interventions that we reverse in buildings that have historic value that we come to now are the ones that have been made maybe in the last forty or fifty years. And they're often the ones that are actually trying to mimic the past, the ones that, you know, pretend that, you know, that uh, Victorian building always had a plant room or whatever it may be, and try to disguise the intervention that's been made. I think that's generally always a mistake. Um, I think it's better to build something of its time. I mean, very often the buildings we're dealing with are the, the survivors of a, a period when probably most of their contemporaries have been demolished because... They are amongst the best examples and the most robust examples of their type. And that's often the case because the original architects and the people that conceived them were bold in their vision when they created these problems. 
And I think we shouldn't shy away from involving our vision for them as well when we come to transform them. And it's not to say that, you know, I'm, I'm advocating a move back to maybe the 1960s and 70s when a slightly more brutalist approach was taken that, you know, began to ignore the cultural context of heritage buildings. That certainly wouldn't be an appropriate route to go down. But I think neither was the kind of 1980s and certainly early 90s approach of trying to be so polite and deferential that actually you end up with things that have a horrible prestige very often. I think I think interventions want to be of their time very much as the original buildings were of their time. And I think that's the most successful expression of any age. And I guess, Mike, yeah, and Dev, in terms of 20th century buildings, you can be bold. There, there is a boldness about 20th century buildings that we work on, which which is refreshing to work on. There is, but I think also the with the narrative moving on around the carbon argument, the what we consider of value is also moving on. It's not necessarily because it is a particularly good example. It can be a value simply because it's there, because you've got a concrete frame. You don't have to rebuild it. You don't have to do the groundwork. You don't have to do a huge amount of work. So, so I think that that perception of value has 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 shifted. Um, and speaking of our of our specific context here in Toronto, a lot of the the sites that are deemed heritage are in in intensely urban areas that are urbanizing at extremely high densities. And so, what we end up with are two or three story kind of you know Edwardian area era or Victorian era buildings where they're deemed heritage and need to be retained on you know, posted stamp size sites where, you know, the, the quote unquote highest and best use is a 50 or 60 story residential or mixed use tower. So so there's really no way of successfully mimicking what's existing. And it, and it is a, a very strong juxtaposition, which is actually quite interesting. Um, and it creates this kind of composition of heritage buildings at the base that still inform the pedestrian experience, but very kind of sleek, high density towers above it that, that emerge and, and inform the skyline. So, so it's a really kind of interesting phenomenon that we're seeing, at least here locally. Yeah. So that, that, that's interesting, again, as an old, you know, a, a different setting and a different set of drivers creating a particular solution. Um, well, thank you all. I think we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, thank you for your insights, Dev, Bruce, and Mike. Uh, I'm off to look at some images of the building you've described, uh, and I'm sure um, those listening will will want to as well. Uh, so, uh, until the next time, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you all.